Welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the cyber theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity. Good day, everyone. I'm Steve King, the Managing Director at Cyber Theory. And today's episode is going to focus on education in cybersecurity and privacy. And joining me today is Rebecca Harold, a cybersecurity and privacy expert with a dozen or so certifications. She's a Ponemon Institute Fellow, the CEO and founder of Rebecca Harold LLC, also known as the Privacy Professor. She's CEO and founder of Privacy and Security Brainiacs, and she's host of the radio podcast show, Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. At one point in Rebecca's long and distinguished career, she worked alongside some of my colleagues here at ISMG, developing training webinars, and and she also was an adjunct professor and curriculum czar for the Norwich University Master of Science in Information Security and Assurance Program for nine years. She has been a subject matter expert on the NIST IoT cybersecurity development team for two years. She was a subject matter expert on the NIST privacy framework team for the two years before that. And prior to that, she led the NIST smart grid privacy group for seven years. She's also a founding member of the IEEE Privacy and Security Architecture for Consumer Wireless Devices Working Group. Rebecca has received numerous awards and recognitions for her work throughout the course of her career and is currently finishing her 20th published book to date. She earned her Bachelor of Science in Math and Computer Science and a Master's Degree in Computer Science and Education and is a longtime member of ASACA, InfoGuard, IAPP, and several other worthy cybersecurity and engineering organizations. So without further ado, I welcome Rebecca. I'm glad you could join me today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Steve. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. So let's talk about the gap in cybersecurity education first. It's huge. We both know that, and it's growing faster every day. And And does that worry you? Well, it certainly concerns me. I mean, this is something that I've seen as an issue throughout my entire career, actually. Since the 1990s, I've been a really strong proponent of incorporating information and cybersecurity, as well as privacy into public school curriculum from, you know, all the way down from preschool throughout postgraduate education and and throughout our entire lives because computer use is becoming even more ubiquitous every day. Uh, Many of the millennials and just think about all the Gen Z folks, they do not know what life is like without internet access or without having some type of computing device that they use or have with them. So making sure that the entire population is educated about cybersecurity and privacy as well is absolutely necessary to improve the very vulnerable state of our networks and systems and applications and data. There are many ways, too, to incorporate cybersecurity formal 
education, as well as ongoing awareness tips and messaging and activities into the lives of all generations. You know, our economy and our our national security depends upon it. And it certainly was my motivation back in 2005 when I started publishing my free monthly privacy professor tips message, which I'm still publishing today, and that thousands of businesses and even more direct to the public individuals receive. And it's one of the core reasons I co-founded my privacy and security brainiacs SaaS services business. And I did so with my now 24-year-old son. And we did that in January of 2020. Uh, and continue to build out services through it to reach all parts of the population. So I'm so grateful for having a Gen Z perspective mixed into that business. I'm sure you are. It's a perplexing problem. You know, we we have uh, more complexity today than we did yesterday and than we did last year and Etc. In our networks and in our network infrastructures and in the systems and and tools that we continue to layer in one on top of another, and as we saw so blatantly with the Solar Winds and Microsoft Tax, no one knows what's in that underlying code, let alone be in a position to, you know, maintain or troubleshoot it. On the one hand, on the other hand, we have fewer and fewer and fewer people that are uh, sufficiently trained to to join the uh, ground forces, if you will. When we began planning uh, CyberEd.io, our online training and education platform, I talked to about three dozen CISOs across every industrial sector imaginable, trying to make sure that we were covering the the you know specific gap that needed the most attention and. Hundred percent of the cases, they said cyber warriors. What's your perspective on that particular need? Well, I can certainly understand from a CISO's perspective and to their responsibilities why a hundred percent definitely would say cyber warriors because I know it's hard for a lot of organizations to find that capability within organizations. But you know, taking even an, a wider view of this, as I said earlier, everyone throughout the population needs this information throughout their lives. And certainly we need a larger, more knowledgeable and more experienced number of information and cybersecurity warriors and in the narrow as well as in the more broad terms to be committed to devoting careers to these issues. And certainly we need entry level to, to also deeply experienced. Uh, we need those who are focused on the depth of knowledge for specialized cybersecurity, but also along with those who have a broad base of domains within which they work. And there's plenty of work for tens of millions of people to be in these types of careers. Everyone in information assurance careers, such as cybersecurity, also need to realize that not only do they need to stay up to date with new and emerging threats, but they also 
they need to continue to address threats that existed 50 and more years ago, along with knowing the vulnerabilities that have developed with all of those still being used legacy systems and and physical security practices throughout that time. You know, two or three years ago, I heard a CISO at a conference giving a keynote, and the CISO is from a really large tech company. And during the keynote, he said, well, what you did 10 years ago for cybersecurity no longer applies. And I just thought, wow, that's a very irresponsible statement, given that all those old vulnerabilities and threats from 50 and in some cases, even more years ago, are still with us. And they are still being exploited, especially now. Some of them are being exploited more than back when they were originally exploited because the eye has been taken off of the ball of all of those vulnerabilities, you know, the the legacy systems and, and those things that are still in use. So while we also need to address the new and emerging tech and data practices and related risk, absolutely. We still need to look at those. So we need cybersecurity warriors, I agree, but also the general population to be aware at all levels. So, you know, I, I still think back on that and that tech CISO should really have realized that the security pros who have 20, 30 and more years of experience are still needed within his own company to continue to provide insights and expertise for all the millions of systems from his corporation that are still being used. Yeah, well, some some CISOs don't actually have legacy systems. So, you know, if we're fortunate that he may have come from that kind of environment, mm-hmm. but you're absolutely right, of course. I'm a little skeptical about that. <laughs> In a lot of risk assessments, Steve, just uh, three years ago, I found during a risk assessment dial up modems in a company that also said we don't, you know, we got rid of those we thought years ago. Well, no, the person who maintained them left the company and nobody else did anything with them. So there they were just sitting there open. It was crazy. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> so we're we're planning to launch our cybered.io platform next month and we've got about 1700 hours or so of our own original cybersecurity training modules and there that's delivered by some of the most respected cyber professionals in the field. And in, in addition to that, we've curated and acquired what we think is the best content from third-party providers as well. What is your opinion, or what in your opinion, is the correct focus on, on privacy? Is it compliance, governance, or the intersection between the need for privacy and the need for security? Well, I love that question. Thank you for it. Because privacy is a term that is interpreted so differently by different individuals. And it's very subjective in many ways, but addressing privacy successfully and fully does not depend upon choosing just one of those options. So folks really need to first understand that privacy is about allowing individuals to have insights about how others are collecting and using and and making decisions about and sharing their personal data and also about 
giving them control over key aspects of those activities. So the most successful focus for managing privacy really needs to be multi-pronged. Organizations need to consider legal requirements, absolutely, and know the associated compliance actions that are necessary. But in addition, they also need to be able to recognize privacy risks that exist outside of any compliance requirements. And there are many. And then they need to govern privacy management based upon a comprehensive framework. Truly, they need to to be able to be successful, such as the NIST privacy framework that considers but also looks beyond solely compliance requirements. And, you know, I've been addressing privacy within business since around 1993, 94. At that time, I was given the responsibility of establishing the privacy requirements for what my employer at the time, a multinational corporation, indicated was going to be the first online bank. Now, this was in addition to my responsibility for creating the information security requirements for that online bank. Just think about 93, 94, there were no privacy laws at that time applicable to online banks. And of course, why would there be if ours was going to be the first? So the lawyers in this multinational corporation where I work, they said, well, you know, that sounds important, but they weren't the ones to do that because there were no legal obligations to comply with privacy requirements when I met with them and asked them to get involved. But I, I really strongly believed that it was important. So I knew the the CEO and, of course, my senior VP. So I convinced both the CEO and the VP at the time to have privacy addressed. And I thought, great, the, the law department's going to get on this. Well, my senior VP came back a few days later and said, well, Rebecca, you know, you made really great points. You convinced us. So since you feel so strongly about it, we're going to give you the responsibility for privacy in addition to information systems security, because this isn't a legal issue right now. It's a risk management issue right now, which uh, I'm glad they did that uh, because that's what got me into privacy along with security simultaneously. So ultimately, there needs to be a privacy leader within the organization responsible for oversight of all privacy impacting activities and issues and risk and governance. And then there needs to be a team that has members who have assigned responsibilities. And that way they can ensure that every aspect is being addressed. And some teams often include folks contracted from outside the organization. If you don't have folks internal who have expertise in specific areas that may not be found there, but it's, it's so important to keep in mind that it's not just about compliance. In fact, Steve, a few years ago, I was surprised when I was contacted by a PhD information assurance researcher from a university in Australia. And he got in touch with me. He said, hey, did you know that the antivirus program that I had 
created for that large corporation was the first one that he could find documented as being implemented in practical use within an organization beyond just theory. And then he went on to tell me that then the remote access solution I created with floppy disks and dial-up modems, but he said that that was the first one that was implemented at, at the corporation as well, anywhere that he could find that was in the 93 to 94 range. So the point is, just because there's not a legal obligation to address privacy in a specific way does not mean that there isn't the need to do so to mitigate privacy risks. Yeah, no kidding. And the, uh, you know, we're, we're limiting that conversation thus far to, you know, PII and, and data. You, at one point, a few years ago, served as the co-chair of the IOMT Connected Devices Conference in Princeton. And it seems to, you know, with the, with COVID, we, you know, HIPAA folks have kind of covered their eyes a bit for the last year or so related to privacy violations and, uh, and uh, enforcing the regulation for good reasons. One, healthcare providers have been you know, struggling to just stay above water. Doesn't the deadly exposure of connected medical devices scare you? And what are your thoughts about the future in that threat arena? It is a very important issue. It needs to be addressed. And I guess, I don't know if it really scares me or frightens me because I do know that those risks can be mitigated. If the appetite is there to do it, it can be mitigated. But the fact that the medical device manufacturers and vendors are not doing more to secure those devices and the systems that are used to support the devices, it does concern me. And quite frankly, it disappoints me that manufacturers who create life-improving and life-saving medical devices are at the same time willing to hurt their patients by not implementing sufficient security and privacy controls within these devices, because certainly those controls need to be there to truly have safe patient care. Indeed. A little while ago, I was visiting a friend in uh, in a local hospital here, and uh, I must look like a doctor or something, because as I was going walking down the aisle to their room, there was a you know portable uh, desktop device sitting on a uh, whatever those things are called, uh, Dolly. I, you know, walked up to it and started fooling around on the keyboard, and people passed me multiple times, and no one questioned who I was or what I was doing there, which is, to me, extremely frightening. Um, exactly, unintentional social engineering there, just because you look so authoritative. Yeah, or just drop a USB. Yeah, I mean a memory stick would, and you, you know, you open ports, and then I'm in, right? So you know that that is uh, it's got nothing to do with systems or technology. That has to do with you know policy and procedure and and hospitals. But you know, if you're only concerned with saving lives, and you know, you reasonably sort of hide behind that principle then it's hard to argue about what else you should be doing or shouldn't be doing with the limited resources that caregivers have. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a, a dilemma that nobody seems to be dealing with. Mm-hmm. 
You were a group leader for the SGIP Smart Grid Security and Privacy Group for like seven years, and then you ran the NIST Smart Grid Interoperability and Privacy Group uh, as well, and you led the team that produced the NISTER 7628 second volume, which created a set of international standards for IT and industrial control systems. Uh, the intention, I guess, was to provide a common baseline and guide for all participating companies to ensure that we have some defense and resiliency measures in place for ICS. How's that going today? Yes. Well, indeed, that was back in 2009. So, you know, I applaud NIST for starting that group because it was kind of very forward looking at that point in time when the utilities or the the vendors making equipment in the electric grid would say, oh, well, what? we're never going to be connected to the internet. That's not an issue we even need to think of. And look today, <laughs> it's much different. But I am very proud of our team that did all that work for those years that put in literally thousands of hours of work. NISTER 7628 was truly the model for the first smart grid privacy law in the country, and that was in California, the state that adopted the law that was based upon Mr. 7628. Now, since I left that project five or six years ago, I have done some very interesting proof of concept cybersecurity tests on actual electric grid equipment for the distribution area of the grid, such as on solar inverters and reclosers and others. But NIST has continued the work, and in fact, last July in 2020, they released draft version four of the NIST framework and roadmap of smart grid interoperability standards. So that work is still going strong, and you know they they do good work over in that group. Yeah, ICS and SCADA though are uh, just to, uh, horribly exposed today, and you know we saw obviously the colonial pipeline and JBS attacks and so forth. And, and then the Chinese are continuing to bang away at, uh, at all of these systems. And, you know, whether a colonial, uh, you know, admits to paying a ransom or not, or I mean, sorry, admits to their OT being connected to their IT or not, it's fairly obvious that it probably was, right? So, and, you know, we've got whatever it is, you know, 2 million miles worth of, <laughs> pipeline connections in the, in the States, and those are all run by you know, private entities. And the, of all people, the TSA are supposed to be responsible for, for those things. Don't you find that there's a significant exposure here? And what do you think we ought to do about it from an organizational point of view, I guess? Well, you know, we <laughs> it, it's complex, especially if you're talking about specifically the grid. The challenges there are the fact that there are not only private but and public, but government agencies all that are a part of that huge grid. And there are different rules and laws and regulations at the state level, at the local level, and then you have at the federal level. And then you have, as you mentioned, private entities that are involved in providing the the hardware and the software and, and doing the maintenance, it really does need to have more unified 
requirements that everyone needs to follow, no matter where they're located. And plus the human factor absolutely has to be addressed because when we are leaving it up to so many different disparate entities throughout this very complex grid to do things, that's, it only takes one weak point, right? In a huge complex system to be able to throw a monkey wrench into the whole thing and bring down huge portions of the grid. So yeah, I I think it needs to be better coordinated for sure. Uh, It feels like 100 years since Obama was in office, but let me quote from what he said back in 2015. He said, America's economic prosperity, national security, and our individual liberties depend upon our commitment to securing cyberspace and maintaining an open, interoperable, secure, and reliable internet. Our critical infrastructure continues to be at risk from threats in cyberspace, and our economy is harmed by the theft of our intellectual property. From my view, instead of creating a a natural response to that, it's gotten actually far worse than that that it was in 2015 in the ensuing uh, six years. We keep talking about it. What in your mind should we do to change it? Well, I agree. You know, the Internet now, people are completely dependent upon it to do many things. Some people, you see them online and social media. When their internet goes down, it's just like a major problem for them because they depend upon it for everything. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we have all of these new types of technologies emerging, but we still have all of the same risks that have accumulated throughout the past 50 plus years. And then we keep adding to them every day new and emerging tech that's being used by more people than ever before. And then there's more data from all of that new tech being created more than ever before. And all of the same systems are still out there. There are many actions that need to take place. But to truly build a long-term strong base of knowledgeable tech users, we absolutely need to update our public school curriculum and incorporate privacy and security into the preschool all the way up through postgraduate formal education and do much, much more education with a wide range of general public outreach areas. We cannot just rely upon formal education anymore. We need to get out and do much more education within a wide range of general public outreach areas because it's obvious from all the misinformation out there that people still don't understand things. And now with misinformation being spread, it makes it even harder to get security to be addressed in appropriate ways. That was one of my goals for my new privacy and security Brainiac SaaS services is to, to have it to at least contribute to such increased education and subsequently uh, more secured systems and data. Yeah, from my view anyway, it appears as if the um, folks that are involved in teaching K through 12 are also unskilled, if you will, in the ability to to address those issues from an educational point of view. So how do we get the teachers to learn enough so that they can actually teach this in in those years that you 
correctly point out are so crucial, given that we're all living in a digital world now. You know, we don't, there's no analog anything, right? So we're here and, you know, whether we're working from home, whether we're working from, or, you know, studying in school physically or what have you, we're exposed to a tremendous amount of vulnerability and risk. I, I look around my home office here, I've got at least six connected devices to a router that supports everything else that's going on in the home here as well. And then connects to the our corporate network, which is, uh, you know, uh, places me and all of this is extreme risk. If we don't, how are we going to get our teachers, the folks that are involved in the day-to-day education of those kids to um, get up to speed? Well, that is important. And in fact, something that I don't know if I've told you before, but I actually taught seventh through 12th grade math and computing between getting my bachelor's and master's degree. And then I I grew up with a father who was a superintendent of schools. And uh, he also, before he became superintendent, spent several years teaching math. So it's something that is important. And I have seen in the, the past few years, especially just a degradation of support for our public school systems, because I know from being a public school teacher that there are so many challenges when you don't have sufficient funding, when you don't have sufficient support. Now I'm seeing states taking the funding that is available and giving it out to private entities or, you know, reallotting it elsewhere. It's we can do another whole whole show on that, Steve, but I do have very firm opinions about that. Just growing up in a household where I saw what my father did in trying to make sure at that time, and that's been a long time ago prior to the internet, but certainly still trying to support teachers to make sure they have what they need and also making sure that the students have what they need as well. So yeah, that that is a huge concern, Steve, and it definitely needs more attention than it gets. It seems like too much is said that just from folks, you know, in different industries that kind of blame public school teachers, but once you've walked a mile in their shoes, I guess you could say, and I did for two years plus lived with a father who was in the public school system, I can say most teachers love what they do and they love teaching. They need to be appreciated more and get more support for what they're doing. So they want to know what to do that's protecting the students' information and and teaching students more about security and privacy. The will needs to be there again from those who have the authority to give that support and to give that funding. Well, we're not short on cash, as we can see. Uh, So I'm not sure how that money doesn't go to the... Yeah, the school systems don't get that. I mean, teachers are spending their own salaries, which are far less than most in industry. For paper clips, yeah. Well, more than paper clips. I mean, it goes beyond that to the actual tools used within 
their systems. I have friends who are still, know many people who are still teaching. A lot of my clients are schools. And I know that they're using, trying to use really old PCs because the school systems have allotted, reallotted a lot of their funding to other areas that are outside of their actual classrooms. So yeah, a lot needs to be done there. Hopefully we'll see some improvements made in the coming years. I always have hope, Steve. I always have hope. (laughs) An optimist uh, after my heart. Let's get together in another three or four months and talk about that topic because as you implied here earlier, that we could spend a long time just talking about that single problem, and and it's going. It has a cascading effect, right? I mean, we're, mm-hmm. we're producing these students who are ill-equipped to deal with the world that we've created for them. So that's my, at least that's my view. So I'm conscious of the time. I know we're out of it. I want to thank our guest, the amazing Rebecca Harold, again for taking time out to join me in what I think was an interesting exchange. Well, thank you. I, you know, I really enjoyed speaking with you, Steve. I always do. And uh, of course, I invite your listeners to check out our new privacy security brainiacs.com site because getting to education again, we've made, uh, we've not made a formal launch yet, but we still have a lot of things out there, free videos and other items if they want to check them out. Indeed, they should. So thank you, Rebecca. And thank you to our listeners for Joining us in another one of Cyber Theory's unplugged reviews of the stuff that matters in cybersecurity technology and in our new uh, digital landscape. So until next time, I'm your host, Steve King, signing out. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Cyber Theory, or send us an email at social at cybertheory.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybertheory.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again.